Dr. David White here for CRIM 260, uh, Juvenile Delinquency Prevention and Control. And in this episode, Chapter 4, I'm summarizing Chapter 4 of our text. And Chapter 4 is important to us. In fact, it's probably one of the most important chapters in our textbook. It summarizes sociological views of delinquency. So a lot of the theories that we hold dear in uh, criminology, well, you find them discussed in Chapter 4. Chapter 4, uh, as far as our learning objectives here, we're going to analyze uh, the association between social conditions and crime. We're going to list the principles of social disorganization theory, apply the concepts of anomie and strain uh, in explaining the onset of delinquency, synthesize the elements of socialization into an explanation of delinquent behavior, and explain the labeling process as it relates to delinquent careers. Again, this chapter provides us with a number of very important uh, criminological theories, all based in the sociological perspectives of crime and delinquency. By sociological, uh, we mean that they see crime and criminality not so much as an individual issue as addressed in chapter three, but as the result of social conditions and social relationships. Uh, the opening to the chapter here is worth including in this sort of summary. Uh, to, so to quote the text uh, from, chapter, or from uh, chapter 4, page 97, most youthful offenders live in tough urban environments where families are either torn apart or in stress and where social support is lacking. Their path to delinquency runs through the social environment. Most delinquents are indigent and desperate, not calculating an evil. Okay, that's what rational choice would have us believe. Uh, rather, uh, they are not living in leafy suburbs. They grew up in deteriorated parts of town that lack the economic resources familiar to more affluent members of society. Explanations of delinquency as individual level phenomenon, again, chapter three, uh, fail to account for the consistent social patterns in delinquency rates Delinquency rates are much higher in the poorest inner city areas. And again, from page 97 of our text. The social uh, aspects revolve around poverty and the concentration of poverty in certain neighborhoods. Keep in mind that about 46 million Americans live in poverty. On the other extreme here, about 1% of the households own about 50% uh, of the wealth. In fact, the richest 80 people in the world have a combined worth that is uh, more than 3.5 billion other people all put together. So just uh, wrap your head around that. Poverty does uh, not affect Americans evenly. Uh, the median family income for Latinos and for African Americans is two-thirds that of whites. And so the, per and the percentage of Racial and, e and ethnic minorities living in poverty is double uh, that of European Americans. Okay, so uh, median family income, again, for uh, Hispanics and uh, African Americans, two-thirds that of whites, and the percentage of racial and ethnic minorities living in poverty, double that of whites. About 28% of African Americans uh, living at the poverty line uh, in comparison to only 11% of non-white 
uh, or of non-Hispanic whites, rather. The textbook breaks down these sociological theories that I'm going to talk about into three broad groups, social structure theories, social process theories, and critical theories. So social structure theories. Social structure theories suggest that, and keep in mind I'm saying theories, okay, this is a group of theories. It these theories suggest that social and economic forces operating in deteriorated lower class areas, including disorganization, stress, and cultural deviance, push residents into criminal behavior patterns. In this way, the view of delinquency is both structural and cultural. And so that is to say these views reflect the belief that uh, inequalities in the social structure force certain individuals into crime because they do not otherwise have legitimate access to culturally supported values and ends. And uh, it is uh, culture in that it supports the belief that those living in these types of conditions have a different cultural value system than America's mainstream. Okay, so you're, they're forced through inequalities by the social structure uh, to uh, live in an area, live in a condition that uh, is criminogenic, and that in turn produces a different set of cultural values, subculture. That's social structural theories. Uh, within this strain, social disorganization theory. Okay, social disorganization theory. This looks at the geographic aspect of crime, the fact that crime concentrates in poor neighborhoods, which are sometimes described in the context of concentrated disadvantage. In these bad neighborhoods or areas marked by culture conflict, a lack of cohesiveness, a transient population, insufficient social organizations. Okay, insufficient sort of social organizations, those things that informally uphold the neighborhood. Uh, in these areas, there is a certain unwillingness of people to intervene in conflict, right? When you're, you live in or you go through a bad neighborhood, you try not to make eye contact with people, you keep your doors locked, uh, you don't want to have to get involved in what's going on around you. People are scared and they don't want to get involved. They generally stick to themselves. And social scientists refer to this phenomenon in the context of collective efficacy, uh, or at least the lack thereof. Collective efficacy is defined as a process in which mutual trust and a willingness to intervene and supervision of children, help maintain public order, create a sense of well-being in the neighborhood, and help control uh, antisocial activities. In neighborhoods that have collective efficacy, informal aspects of the control uh, keep the neighborhood safe, keeps the neighborhood uh, uh, crime out, but when informal social control processes, that is the breakdown of or lower levels of collective efficacy uh, occur while crime develops. Social control in this context is the ability of social institutions like schools and churches and uh, social groups to influence human behavior. The justice system is the primary agency of formal social control, 
But the reality is, is these other institutions create a more or less informal system of social control within the neighborhood that is, in, in truth, much more effective than what is seen as the external influence of the criminal justice system. That is, the, the police come into the neighborhood to try to maintain order, never as effective as the informal aspects, really, of a, of a good neighborhood itself. Uh, as crime develops and neighborhoods become crime prone, the area tends to uh, not improve over time. Short of serious intervention by city leaders, uh, as bad areas stay bad, those who are forced to live in these deteriorated conditions develop a different culture. Uh, this culture is then transmitted and passed from one generation to the next, and this is referred to as cultural transmission. One uh, famous sociologist uh, that writes about this is uh, William Julius Wilson. And so if you're interested in these things, I encourage you, and I will talk about him in more detail over the course of the semester and his work. But uh, William Julius Wilson, The Truly Disadvantaged, is one of his books, When Work Disappears, um, uh, or is another, and there are several. Uh, he has several good books. Living in a bad neighborhood is particularly difficult for those who live closer uh, to the areas that are good. Right? So you're bad neighborhood, but you live right next to an area that is good. This uh, aspect where poor and wealth live relatively close to one another causes additional hostilities. It causes negative feelings of self-worth uh, for those stuck in poverty. Research studies uh, do show a strong positive association between uh, income inequality and violent crime. Uh, a finding that supports the relative deprivation concept that I'm uh, relating to you here. Relative deprivation, uh, as used in our textbook, refers to conditions that exist when people of wealth and poverty live in close proximity to one another. When neighborhoods are reclaimed, uh, another issue emerges, right? So city leaders do decide to take action. They want to take the neighborhood back over. Uh, they're going to kick all of the poor people out. Uh, that has consequences, right? Not saying that they don't take a bad neighborhood, turn it back into a good neighborhood again, but in some cases that old urban space that has been uh, uh, allowed to deteriorate has an underlying aesthetic element, right? Uh, an aesthetic element of old buildings, industrial spaces that can be converted into things like microbreweries and uh, new sort of townhouses that take advantage of old architecture. And uh, uh, in addition to having a cool edge to that, real estate investors see the opportunity to take advantage of something cheap and flip it, right? And to make more money, obviously. As uh, this happens, the areas get gentrified. And gentrification is a process of reclaiming space from poor people and turning it into a more usable, quote unquote, middle class or commercial space. However, as this occurs, of course, those who are already forced to live in extreme poverty are forced out, often with very few, if any, options for other housing. Uh, and in the late 1990s and early 2000s, there was a significant movement to reclaim center, uh, city centers, city spaces uh, across the country. And I think we're sort of seeing some of that reemerge once again, to be quite honest with you. 
The next theory to talk about here is strain theory. And there's actually two forms of strain theory, so don't get these confused. Uh, um, uh, there is classical strain theory and there's what's known as the general strain theory. What, I call what I'll call classical strain theory here, originally uh, formulated by the theorist Robert K. Merton. Robert K. Merton, uh, classical strain theory from the mid 20th century, where strain uh, is generally defined as a condition caused by a failure to achieve one's social goals. Failure to achieve goals. Merton's version of strain theory, he argued that we all share a common goal, right? That is money and success, security, these sort of things. But the means, right, the means for legitimate uh, financial and social success are not always accessible. So the end goal is there, but the means are not, uh, especially for those living in lower socioeconomic class. The imbalance caused by the lack of available means to achieve the culturally upheld goals, such as financial and social success, i.e. the ends, leaves those without means feeling strained. So Merton uses a term from Emile Durkheim, an earlier uh, sociologist, perhaps a, one of the fathers of sociology. He uses Durkheim's term anomie. And anomie refers to a state of normlessness produced by rapidly shifting moral values uh, to describe the, he uses this to describe the feeling individuals have when their personal goals cannot be achieved using socially acceptable means. This causes people to feel strained and in turn they adapt. Okay, and though, so although the text does not address it directly, Merton offers five different adaptations. These five adaptations from, from Merton include conformity. Right? So even though we uh, can't achieve the end goal, we still just simply conform. Right? We work our low-level job uh, in uh, uh, whatever trade or industry we are able to get a job in. Often uh, at this point in history, uh, often in what we call the service industry perhaps. Uh, ritualism is the next adaptation, though. People will just ritualistically sort of adopt the end goals. Uh, rebellion is one of the adaptations here, where people just openly and defiantly rebel against the uh, uh, socially held goal. Innovation, right? I can't get rich uh, through conventional legitimate means, so I steal, I sell drugs, I do whatever. Uh, that would be an innovation. And finally, retreatism. I can't achieve the end goal, so therefore I simply retreat and avoid even trying. In some, Merton's theory of strain approaches why crime is strongly associated with poverty, and that is because legitimate pathways to success are, or at least seem to be, closed off. The second aspect of strain theory is that general strain theory. And general strain theory comes from Robert Agnew from the 1990s. And so Robert Agnew So Robert Agnew uh, builds on Merton's idea to focus on three sources of strength, three sources of strength. Agnew's theory again known as the general strength theory and he argues that strain occurs when there is a failure to achieve a positively valued goal. That's very consistent with Merton's work. Secondly though, strain occurs when there is a removal of a positive stimuli. 
Okay, so uh, maybe I'm inclined to be a delinquent, but grandma's there. Grandma keeps me on the right path, but uh, she keeps me from going out and doing things I shouldn't. Grandma passes away, no longer there. That positively valued stimuli to uh, conform is gone, right? And so no longer there. Finally, uh, Agnew points to a third source, and that is the introduction of a negative stimuli. Introduction of a negative stimuli. And so uh, I was doing okay, but then I got in trouble at school, and now the teachers treat me different, the principal treats me different, uh, and there's an introduction of sort of this negative stimuli that sort of weighs on me. And so according to Agnew, adolescents are engaged in delinquency as a result of negative affective states. Affective. The uh, affective states include anger, frustration, fear, or other adverse emotions that derive from strain. Uh, the greater the intensity and the frequency of the strain experience, the greater their impact and the more likely they are to cause delinquency. Uh, learning to cope with strain then through legitimate, through socially acceptable outlets helps people not overreact to strain. So therefore, they protect their long-term interest. Having legitimate, uh, socially acceptable outlets to sort of reduce some of the strain. And this is particularly important for young people. The next theoretical approach here uh, is cultural deviance theory. Cultural deviance theory uh, links delinquent acts to the formation of independent subcultures within a unique set of values that clash with mainstream culture. That is to say, subcultures hold a view that uh, deviance, uh, uh, the, the, the subculture holds this value that deviates from the mainstream, and by mainstream I mainly mean middle-class American value. And this is especially framed around what is sometimes called a culture of poverty, whereby delinquency is the result of a youth's desire to conform to lower-class neighborhood cultural values that conflict with larger uh, society, larger social values. Um, the, the textbook also talks about social process theories, and unlike social structure theories, they concentrate on differences in the social uh, strata uh, or social structure. Theories that concentrate on social processes really focus on socialization. And so socialization is a process of learning the values and norms of society or of the subculture to which an individual belongs. Okay, so uh, within this aspect of social process theories, we find social learning theory, we find social control theory, I'm going to talk about those separately here in just a second, but in, um, in the aspect of process, that's what we're talking about. In the aspect of cultural deviance theory, we're talking about uh, that subculture, particularly that subculture of poverty. Uh, but within this idea of uh, the social process theories, we again find social learning theory, which is mentioned a little bit in chapter 3. And so uh, social learning theories posit that uh, delinquency is learned through close social relationships uh, with others. Children who are, are, children are basically born good and they learn to be bad from watching others. 
one of the most well-known versions, again, as I said in, in the Chapter 3 summary, is Edward Sutherland's Differential Association Theory, uh, which asserts that, that criminal behavior is learned uh, primarily in interpersonal groups and that the youth will become delinquent if the definitions they learn in those groups uh, are favorable to violating the law. And in fact, those exceed the definitions favorable to obeying the law. That is, the, it seems to make more sense to break the law than to conform. Uh, in simple as terms here, having positive experiences with antisocial others leads to delinquency. The focus on definitions boils down to a competition between what the antisocial others tell you and what society conventionally tells you uh, in a pro-social way. For example, society tells you alcohol is bad and you are uh, underage, and, but yet your friends tell you it's good and when you get drunk with them, you have a positive experience. Uh, their definition of alcohol consumption now seems better to you than the one offered by society. And thus, this in continues and it encourages uh, you to engage in additional alcohol consumption. In general, the priority, the intensity, the duration, and the frequency of relationships with, uh, within which a juvenile interacts with delinquents, uh, um, that's what affects the ability to transmit these delinquent attitudes to the juvenile. Uh, this is a, uh, or at least in this theoretical concept, delinquents teach others uh, not only positive definitions of antisocial behavior, but they teach each other techniques to neutralize the guilt that they may have from violating social norms. And so you'll see in Seitz and Matz's techniques of neutralization uh, that they talk about this in more detail, uh, but they teach others these uh, techniques to neutralize any feelings of guilt you might have, and they teach others the physical techniques needed to commit delinquency, right? How do you access drugs? How do you access alcohol? Um, where do you go to steal something, right? How do you steal? How do you break in? How do you uh, steal a car? These sorts of things. And so those are specific techniques that are learned from other more experienced delinquents. In the social control theory, uh, or so you might say social control theories, but we're really talking about social control theory, and it is one of the key theoretical aspects I want you to remember, uh, sometimes referred to as a social bond theory. And it believes that delinquency results from weakened commitment uh, to major social institutions, families, uh, peers, and schools. Lack of such commitment allows youths to experience antisocial behavioral uh, choices. And so the social bond ties a person to the institution, the processes of society. Elements of the bond include, importantly here, attachment, commitment, involvement, and belief. One more time. Attachment, commitment, involvement, and belief. So in other words, positive experiences and bonds with pro-social others encourages conformity. Okay, it encourages conformity, whereas the lack of positive experiences, the lack of bonds with pro-social others encourages delinquency. So this theory is generally associated with Travis Hershey uh, from 1969. It's important that you remember that because Hershey is also responsible for another 
major theory uh, that he presents later on. And so Hershey 1969 is all about social bonds. Okay, uh, Hershey and Godfredson 1990s, well, they talk about the general theory of crime, which focuses on self-control, not social control. But Hershey 1969, uh, again, associated with social bond theory. Um, when we're talking about attachment with family and friends and community, are they committed to their future, to socially acceptable career goals, to uh, and focused on following legitimate social paths for success? Does the juvenile believe in the same values as mainstream America, such as honesty, fairness, responsibility, etc.? And are they involved? Involvement is critical to delinquency prevention. Youth who are involved in conventional leisure activities, such as supervised social activities and sports, are far less likely to engage in delinquency than those who are uh, involved in unconventional, unsupervised leisurely activities or peer-oriented social pursuits. Okay, So the more kids involved in some of these pro-social activities, scouting, sports, um, after-school clubs, the more likely they are to follow conventional pathways. Next uh, theoretical perspective here is labeling theory, and labeling theory focuses on social interactions and the labels that we put on individuals. Becoming stigmatized or labeled by agents of social control, including uh, official institutions such as the police, your teachers, the courts, uh, and unofficial institutions such as parents and neighbors, well that creates and sustains delinquent careers, at least according to this theoretical perspective. Labeling theory believes society creates deviance through a system of social control agencies that designate or label certain individuals as delinquent, thereby stigmatizing them and encouraging them to accept a negative personal identity. This includes self-labeling, which is the process uh, by which a person who has been negatively labeled accepts the label as a personal role or identity. Labeling theory basically believes that some uh, primary act of deviance led to the label being given to the individual. The label then causes others to treat them in a certain way uh, or for them to accept the label and conform to that sense of identity. I've been told I'm bad, so therefore I am bad, right? Uh, but this is sometimes addressed in the context of a self-fulfilling prophecy, uh, which is where deviant behavior pattern uh, um, patterns that are a response to an earlier labeling experience uh, use act out these social roles even if they are sort of falsely bestowed and so uh, labels are especially difficult if they are given by a formal institution recognized authority figures right uh, by the criminal justice system by police by the schools and these are known as official labels official labels and that's important to us Labeling is uh, sometimes part of the sentencing and deterrence process in adult crimes. We have the sex offender registry, uh, right? And we therefore label people as sex offender. And when we do, that carries a certain weight with it, carries certain consequences. Uh, but with juvenile society tends to, uh, by and large, try to take a softer approach. And we make an effort to reduce the harm of labels. Uh, uh, for examples, juveniles' names are often withheld from the press 
we seal or destroy juvenile court records. In some cases, we, or in most cases, really, we don't even allow outside persons in the juvenile court hearing. Other efforts to divert juveniles from formal court proceedings uh, or from their formal introduction to the criminal justice system are also consistent with policy implications that are advanced by those who support this perspective. One last thing here not mentioned in the summary but important to you if you're wanting to understand labeling theory um, and that is that uh, as I said just a second ago uh, there's a primary act of deviance that leads to the label but labeling theory focuses on secondary deviance secondary deviance and the reason it does is because there had to be some primary act that led to the label so it, it does not explain uh, that initial delinquent act it focuses on secondary deviance and if you're going to write anything do a presentation on labeling theory you need to understand and not overlook that important aspect of that perspective Critical theories is the last thing to address here, and critical theories covers a lot of territory. The textbook adds critical theory uh, to the chapter, though there are actually multiple different theories in this vein of criminological theories. Okay, in general, critical theory is viewed uh, or takes the view that intergroup conflict, intergroup conflict, uh, born out of unequal distributions of wealth and power in our society. Are the root cause of delinquency and so therefore critical theories tend to look at marginalized individuals marginalized aspects of population uh, and imbalances in uh, wealth and power from this perspective the dominant class uh, uses the criminal law to protect and promote their own interests while marginalizing those who may compete for power or control thus crime is of course the result of class conflict in many of these cases so that's pretty much the last theory there. So just summarizing this, this chapter is packed with information on criminological theories. Uh, the, um, con the concept summary diagram, diagram 4.1 in our text on page 117, is helpful in providing a quick breakdown of some of the core premises and strengths of each of these theories that I've discussed. However, additional information is also available through the theory list and the resource tab, particularly the handbook on criminological theories that I ask you to use for some of the various assignments. And so uh, we'll talk about many of these in class and I want you to generally apply these theoretical perspectives over the course of the semester as we talk about other issues uh, and other policy implications. And so that's why I've built it into so many different assignments. Hope you enjoyed. If you have any questions, as always, of course, feel free to email me or otherwise reach out.